0: Well, good morning. It's great to be with you this morning, and thank you for telling them all of my deep, dark secrets, Jared. I appreciate that. Uh, There are many of you who don't know me, and there's lots that you probably could learn about me in time if we ever got to know each other, but we'll save that for the future. What he said is true. I am a big fan of the Batman and a number of other things, but the way you find that out is you have to visit me in my office. As the counseling pastor, most people don't want to visit me in my office. And you know what? That's okay. The good news is, is if you don't visit me in my office, you're probably better off in life for that. Well, I'm glad to be with you here this morning. I'm glad to be at the Cedar Lake campus in particular. I've gotten to know a number of you over the last couple of months. I've had the privilege to be involved in a marriage retreat that this campus did back in February. And then I was involved in, I think I was here on Good Friday actually as well. So all kinds of fun things and developed some relationships as I've gone. So as Pastor Mark is in Crown Point this morning, it is a privilege for me to fill his pulpit here and with that, as we're in a, in a study of Proverbs, I started to think, boy, it's, it's honestly, if I'm going to be just transparent with you for a couple of minutes, it's kind of unfair that I get to preach out of the book of Proverbs. Given that I do counseling, I'm in the Proverbs all the time. Like, I'm talking about diligence, I'm talking about purity and marriage and forgiveness, and basically anything in the world that the book of Proverbs talk about, I will reference it at one point or another. So as a part of our summer series, to get to then approach the book of Proverbs, it, it should seem a little bit unfair. I should have to go to, like, Isaiah, right? And yet, I get the unique opportunity to be in Proverbs this morning. So as we do that, I want to set some expectations for us. I want to I outline what I hope to accomplish this morning because we're going to go to God's Word maybe a little bit differently than we do at other times here at Bethel Church. We are very good here at going to the text and expositing it the way the Bible presented the information to the original audience. But on more than one occasion, when folks have come to me for counseling, and I have asked them something to the tune of, hey, what did you learn this past Sunday? Because I really think it applied to you. They had a hard time articulating to me what they could go and do with it in their everyday life, every single week. And that's okay, because we have a unique opportunity this morning to go into God's Word and do something very specific. I want us to leave this morning with a very practical theology. You'll see that the title of my message is A Practical Theology of Work. As the video just shared, work is worship. And anywhere we go, in everything we do, whether it's you're still in school and involved in scholastic endeavors, whether you're on a sports team, whether or not you have a day job, you're a stay-at-home parent, whatever, there's a form of work that you do that is, in fact, worship. And there's an attitude and a mindset and principles that we can use in all of those areas of life, in every single area of life, that will give us a practical theology Of work. So my goal for us this morning is to leave not just with an understanding of what a couple of places in Proverbs says. My goal this morning is for every single one of us to leave with something that you can do. Something I can do. A matter in which your life will be different than when you walked in the door. Where you will leave with a concrete principle where you think to yourself, not only can I do this, I will do it. Okay, so we're not going to spend as much time as we typically do unpacking the passages as much as I'm going to share with you the meaning of the text and we're going to transition then right into practical application because I want everybody to leave today doing something and motivated to work for the glory of God. Before we do that, let me just review a few things. The first is this. In Proverbs, there are three characters that we've talked about to this point. There's the wise There's the fool and there's the simple, right? So for our time together this morning, what I want to do is rename them. And I want to give you the names that we're going to call them today as we unpack a theology of work. For the wise, we'll call the wise person diligent, okay? The diligent person. For the fool, we're going to call the fool lazy or a sluggard, maybe a sloth. Those are all words that you'll find in the Bible. And then for the simple, TBD. Because I'll tell you in a little while, I want to build the ideas of diligence and laziness first. And then at the end, we're going to culminate it in in an idea that I think if I told you now, it would paint an inappropriate light on it because I want to unpack something very, very specific. To that end, there's one other important piece of maybe pre-information that I'd like to share with you. And it's that everything that we're going to talk about today has a double meaning. You know, we think, when we think of theology of work, it's very natural to say, it's the work of my hands, it's my job, it's my sports team, it's my school, it's my parenting, it's my whatever, right? But these things apply to spiritual disciplines as well. For every area of work that we're gonna talk about in your life, it will not just be the work of your hands, but it can be applied to how much time you steward to spend in the Bible, how much time you spend in personal prayer or prayer with your family, it can be spent on spiritual disciplines as well. So understand right away that there is a lot of cross application, and I'm going to note it to you as we go. I'm going to give you various bits of practical application and spiritual application so that you leave fully equipped in that way. So if you would open your Bible, or if you're like me, you prefer the electronic Bible, Go to the Proverbs and go to Proverbs chapter 6. We're going to start in Proverbs chapter 6 this morning. And as you do that, I want to set the perspective with which we're going to read, okay? What's happening here is the author of Proverbs 6, likely Solomon, we don't know that for sure, but it is likely Solomon. What Solomon here or the author is doing is he as a diligent person is trying to teach a lazy person. As a diligent person, he's going to then rebuke a lazy person and give them an example to follow. So we're going we're gonna to pick up in verse 6 and read through verse 11 together. So understand, this is the diligent speaking to a lazy person. And we're going to extrapolate then three principles about what it means to be diligent first. That's the very first thing. So let's go to verse 6 together. It says, "'Go to the ant, O sluggard, and consider her ways, and be wise.'" Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man." Now you'll note I read that in a couple of different tones because there are a number of different tones that are represented in this text and it's depending on whether or not he's trying to teach, trying to correct, trying to rebuke. There's a number of things that are all happening here. The first thing that we note is the author of Proverbs 6, he speaks in the form of an analogy and the analogy he uses is the ant. This is not just any ant, it is a very specific ant, it is a harvester ant. It should not be a surprise to us that the author of Proverbs speaks to us in the form of an analogy. In fact, various people throughout the entirety of the Bible spoke in analogies. Jesus himself spoke in parables. So the writer of Proverbs is doing something that would have been very culturally relevant, speaking to them in the form of the ant, and giving them that example would have been something they would have been very, very familiar with. In verse 7, or excuse me, in verse 8, we find that he references the summer and the harvest. That's a, that's a particular time of year. And harvest ants would have been seen in plenty at that time. The harvest ant would have been an incredibly well-known, well-recognized figure. During the harvest, as people were working, they would have just seen the ants working too. And it wasn't just biblical writers that noted the existence of the ants. If you go to other wise sayings of the past, because there were many, many world religions that existed at this point in time, you'll find that the harvester ant was an example that was used consistently across various religious thought and discipline. So again, anybody that would approach this text, they would see, oh, the the ant, of course. We know exactly who that is. We know exactly what he's talking about, okay? So what is the first thing that we can learn then? We find that in verse six. It's this. The ant is wise and pursues wisdom. Given how well known the ant was, this is, again, this is not an uncommon thing. In fact, they were used as a moral example fairly consistently. They were pointed to for their self-discipline. The ant was pointed to for being industrious, for being strong and related compliments like that. The writers of this particular text and other moral sayings, they would have seen the ant as something of an anomaly. Because you've also, imagine with me a big black ant. You know what I'm talking about, right? About yay big? What's the first thing you think to do when you see an ant? Crunch! The end, right? And yet, that is not often what happened with these ants. In fact, you've got to remember, this was a very different day and age. Entertainment was a very different thing. People watched creation, In the past, they watched what happened in the world around them. They would have marveled at the fact that the ant was doing the same work that they were, which is why this ant was studied. It was studied because it was industrious, it was studied because it worked hard right along people at the same time in the same season. So, what Proverbs 6 then is telling us is to consider the ways of the ant. Meaning, we should be considering their work ethic. We should be considering their industrious nature. We should be considering why and how the ant does its work. And again, given that it's not just biblical texts that would say this, it's important that I note to you, too, that non-biblical authors of other type of Proverbs, they actually went so far as to ascribe to the harvester ant moral qualities, spiritual qualities. The ant was often seen as being honest as having had integrity and solidarity, which is just fascinating. All that from just watching the ant work with them. Across all religious disciplines, this was an example that people agreed upon in this day and age. This is an example worth following. This is an example of diligence. This is a work ethic worth noting. So what are we called to here? We are called to study the character of the ant, What Solomon or the writer here, whoever they may be, was saying is that their character is worth noting. So our first practical takeaway is this. The first piece of application I want you to leave with is we should be a student of diligent work ethics. We should be a student of the ant. We should study them to know how it is we have the right perspective about work. We should study them for the level of follow-through that they had. We should study them for their industrious nature. Because they are a worthy example to us. They knew when to work. They knew how much work they needed to do. I'll unpack that for you in a moment. And they knew when it was the season to work and when it was the season to rest. So what does this look like practically? What's an example that you can take away with this from? We need to, for example, pursue spiritual disciplines not just in the season that we are on, but in the season we are off. Okay, What the ant teaches us is we need to have a sound work ethic and good character. You don't just need spiritual disciplines. You don't just need to pray. You don't just need the Bible. You don't just need to be at church when life is hard. You need to be in a place like this doing those things all the time. Because that is what someone of good rapport and good character does. You don't just want to have accountability, for example, when you are struggling with sin. You don't just want to be involved in a men or a women's group when life is tough. You want to be in community and have accountability all the time. So that you are in fact a trustworthy person and it remains that way because you have that type of accountability. You are known to have that character. The ant is an example that we should study to that end. The second piece that I'd like to unpack for us then is this. The ant, who is diligent, needed no formal leadership and no formal accountability whatsoever. He was studious to his own ends. The ant was a good steward of his abilities and he made the most of his time, day and night, in season. And that is a very important term, in season. Meaning when the work was there, they got after it. Anybody ever heard the, hey, make hay while the sun rises? That's exactly, literally, what they are talking about here. When the work was there, they worked very, 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 very hard. And then they earned well-earned rest. They worked hard to rest. They were industrious. They were diligent. They were prudent. They were literally their own bosses. And they didn't need anybody else to motivate them. They didn't need anyone to spur them on. In fact, Proverbs 16.26 gives us the reason why. It gives us their motivation as ants and really what our motivation should be here as well. It says, A worker's appetite works for him. His mouth works. Urges him on. The ant knew that it had to work to survive. The ant knew that then, when the work was finished, it would rest and it would enjoy the fruit of its labor because a harvester ant just did that. It harvested. And when the harvest was over, its work was done until the next harvest. Further, consider how often in the Proverbs we're told not to take shortcuts. We're told don't throw your lot in with robbers And then divvy up the purse. Don't do things that's going to like, you know, make your work less valid. Don't go halfway. The Proverbs are littered with this kind of instruction. Again, this is a character thing. And what the writer of Proverbs 6 is doing is he is encouraging us to have the right mindset. Because the right mindset means you and I don't need to be micromanaged. We shouldn't need people beating down our doors to do the things that we need to do. We shouldn't need our spouse asking us to do the thing that we know we need to do around the house. We shouldn't need our supervisors to remind us of our job. We shouldn't need our teachers to remind us of our homework. We shouldn't need our coaches to spur us on to work hard. Does that make sense? We should be self-starters. We should be able to be trusted in that way. For the ant, it needed no formal accountability at all. It knew it needed to do the hard work during the season of hard work. You see, the harvest season was relatively short. It wasn't a lengthy period of time. The harvester ant knew it would get a season of rest. It knew as a part of its work ethic that when it was done, rest was going to be available to it. Which is why the writer of Proverbs 6 actually mocks the lazy person. He mocks him because rest is a part of the work. We'll talk more about that here in just a minute. What we need to learn from this is that the ant's motivation was correct. The ant's motivation behind why it worked was correct. It needed no formal accountability system because it was trustworthy. It didn't need to take shortcuts. It knew its purpose, and it knew its mission. It had a clear focus, clear direction, and a resulting purpose that carried it through through as a part of its work. And we need to pursue similar mindsets. So the second point, the second matter of application then, is we must, as people, pursue utter trustworthiness. We must pursue to be utterly diligent. We should not need to be micromanaged. Your spouse, your children, those you serve under, those you work with, they should look at you and say, they are so diligent, I don't need to be chasing after them. I don't need to micromanage them. But that is a result of how trustworthy we present ourselves. That is a result of how hard we work to accomplish the work that is set before us. Trust is earned. And it is earned through not just the work of your hands, but spiritual disciplines as well. If you, want to tru- if you want your family to trust, for example, that you will lead them spiritually, you actually have to do the work to lead them spiritually. If you want to be a trusted person, you have to do the demonstrated work to see that. The third thing, then, that we can learn from the ant is in verse 8. It tells us that the ant plans ahead. This is significant. It's significant because they worked hard during the harvest. And it would be during the harvest that it is likely that the ants would think what we think. Boy, I can't wait until I can sit down. The ant knew its role and it knew exactly how long the duration of its job would be. Bruce Watke, who is a Bible commentator and scholar, who is, he wrote an exhaustive uh, commentary on the book of Proverbs, something to the tune of 1,200 pages, just on the 31 pages. Chapters of Proverbs. It's, it's an insane commentary. And he, in this, he unpacks the harvest season. He gives a, in great detail exactly what would be happening during the harvest season to give readers like us the ability to understand exactly what the writer here was talking about. He explains that the summer referred to, the harvest referred to in verse 8, was a very specific, very short season of time. That this harvest started with the wheat harvest. And the wheat would have been harvested in tandem with all kinds of other vegetables and fruit and crops. And all of that would have been done in exactly four weeks. Approximately, about four weeks. So a relatively short period of time. And then upon completion of the wheat harvest and all of the other vegetables and fruits, they moved immediately into the barley harvest. The barley harvest had to be done right away afterwards. And that took, again, approximately four weeks. Which meant... The toiling hard work season of the ant was approximately two months long. Two months of 12. Are any of you teachers in the room, school teachers? Raise your hand if you are. I'm going to really try hard not to offend you right now. It only worked two months. It's incredible. It only worked two months. There's other work that had to be done. But think about this for a minute. It only worked two hard months out of the year. It had 10 months of rest. Ten months of enjoying the fruit of its labor. Now, granted, not all of our lives are like that. There are probably zero people in this room who have only worked two months and then get to rest ten. Jared, you've probably heard the pastor's joke, you only work one day a week. I assure you, we work more than one day a week. I assure you, you work more than two months out of every 12-month year. The ant planned ahead. It worked really, really really hard for a short duration and then transitioned into its season of rest. And what would happen then is in the season of rest, it built its strength for the season of hard work. And in the season of work, it looked forward to the rest. And that is the life cycle of the ant. It planned to work and then it worked to rest, which is why the writer of Proverbs mocks the lazy person here. Because the duration of time that is being referred to here in the harvest season was relatively short. And yeah, it's hard work, but rest is a part of planned work. And if you are not planning to rest, that is a failure to plan. If you are not planning to rest, that is a failure to plan, not just on the ant's part, but on our part. Rest has been given to us as a part of God's plan. The ant knew that, which is why it is such an apt example. Does that make sense? Not with me if that makes sense. This is, an, this is an important thing. If you are not planning rest as a part of your daily life or as a part of your weekly life, if rest is not a part of you, you have a failure to plan in some way, shape, or form. Friends, the plan ahead is to follow through on creating Needed rest. That's why God gave Israel a Sabbath in the first place. And that, there's an expansive theology that we could go into related to that. But the point is this, rest has always been a part of God's plan. Hard work should always result in appreciation of rest. A right perspective, a right perspective about work, a right perspective about why it is we work and how it is that we do work leads us to a desire to have the correct kind of Rest. Rest is enjoying the fruit of one's labor and should then motivate us to do more work. And if you enjoy the work that you do in the first place and cultivate a right heart about it, then it is much less work than it is toiling. Doing counseling, you know, I I get asked on almost a weekly if not more basis, how, you know, what, how do you take care of yourself? How is it that you do what you do all the time? I don't know that I could do that. I don't know that if I could take on all that stuff all the time. And my answer is almost always relatively the same thing. I love what I do. I love my particular role in the kingdom of God. And to me, it's not really work. If you love what you do and you are able to cultivate a love for what you do, even if it's not like your passion, if your perspective is right, how you approach work will be different. How you approach rest will be different. So I want to challenge you to that end. Look for ways in your life to plan ahead. Create means of rest in your life. Wisdom is planning rest and resting well. So all that for diligence. Let's transition then because there's more that we need to cover. Let's talk a little bit about laziness. What it means to be slothful or a sluggard. To do that, I want to go to a different passage from Proverbs. Go to Proverbs 24. Flip up to Proverbs 24, and then I want to set the context for you again. In Proverbs 24, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt this was Solomon that wrote this. And Solomon describes a very vivid, very fascinating picture to us that is very worth our time and attention sermon, uh, Spurgeon, excuse me, in a sermon back in 1888. He did an exhaustive treatment of this passage of Scripture. And some of his thoughts are fascinating. I'll, I'll unpack one of them for you in a little while. But one of the things that he said is Solomon was historically known because Solomon's kingdom existed during a time of peace. So what he would do is he'd hop in his chariot and he would tour Israel. He would tour the countryside. And what Spurgeon believed happened here is Solomon was on one of his routine tours of the countryside of the land of Israel and he came across what he describes in Proverbs 24:30 he came across the field of a sluggard and he learned something from it so in your mind that's kind of how i want you to picture this i want you to picture this as if you are sitting in a chariot and you come across the field that is described in this passage because what solomon says is he considered it and received instruction and there's some instruction that we can receive from it as well it says starting in verse 30 I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. And behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with needles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked, and I received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber. And want like an armed man. It's a pretty fascinating passage of scripture. And it's interesting that Solomon saw this with his own eyes and thought enough about it to use it as a bit of retrospective instruction. What do we know here? We know that having land in Israel was a prized thing. Having that, that size of a blessing in Israel was very significant. To be a landowner, to let alone have that landowner wall it off, because it says there was a wall there that was broken down, that was all a very significant thing. Having a land blessing, a land right, was significant in the life of an Israelite. And what Solomon says here is he came across someone that had this expansive blessing, this land, and they were not taking care of it. In order to have this kind of blessing at this stage in the kingdom of Israel, it would have meant that this person would have had the appearance of sophistication. They would have had the appearance of someone who was, in fact, very, very diligent. They would have looked like someone you would want to trust and say, yeah, yeah, they're an example that I would want to follow. Which is why Solomon makes the point of this person is one who lacks sense. They lacked The wisdom to follow through and steward well the blessing that they have. They lacked and did not value the precious blessing and commodity that God had given them. To what end? Why is that important? Because for us, let's bring this home to us. God has given you, God has given me, tremendous blessings. Think about what you have in your life, think about your family, think about your job think about the house that you have think about the things god has given you there is no sense in not stewarding them well think about the blessings that you have what is going to happen to them if you don't take care of them we'll come back to that here in just a minute consider what he says in proverbs 24:31 it says the stone wall had been broken down meaning this person who had the appearance of diligence They had enough foresight in their mind to wall off their property. They marked their territory and then proceeded to not only do nothing with the inside of the territory, but what the text implies is that the wall had been broken down from the outside. The wall didn't deteriorate from the inside. It broke down from the outside, meaning somebody could just come in whenever they wanted to. So let's press this analogy a little bit further. Let's just just make this stick a little bit. Some of you have probably been involved in varsity sports. Others of you have a very high-paying job. Some of you have a wonderful family. Let's let's land on the family for a moment. Let me ask you this example. You, you, You have kids, some of you have children. You make sure that they go to school, you make sure that they have food, you put a roof over their head, all of the amenities, clothes that they need in life, they are all met, right? But let me ask you this question. What do they do with their free time? Do they have unfettered access to the internet? How much social media do you allow them to consume? Do you know who they are snapping on Snapchat? Some of you are like, what are you talking about right now? How much time do they spend on Instagram? What are they allowed to watch on Netflix? Some of you teens in the room, young adults, are starting to sweat. You should. You should. How are you stewarding that blessing? Did you know that on average, I think, I think it's eight years old, the first exposure that a little boy will have to pornography is at eight years old? I'm not mistaken on that, is that right? Wasn't it you that told me that? Yeah? Six? Oh, six, I'm sorry, six years old. How much unfettered a- internet access do we let our children have again? How are you stewarding the blessings that you have? If you've made a varsity team, do you, ma- do you get on the team and then put in the bare minimum of effort? If you've been blessed to have a high paying job that allows you to do, or any job at all, do you go there and put in the bare minimum just enough to get by? Do you not steward the land? Do you not steward that blessing well? Because what Solomon tells us here is if you are not stewarding that well, you lack sense. And in time, your blessing will come to ruin. Your blessing will come to ruin. This text reveals that this worker had all the knowledge to do something with this blessing. He had the ability to do something with it because he owned it in the first place. It's not like blessings just fall out of the sky. He had the foresight to own the land, to have the ability to grow crops, to build a wall around it, and then proceeded to do nothing with it. It's not like he was being asked to guard the wall of Jerusalem Spurgeon made a great point on this in that sermon that I referenced earlier. He says this. He encapsulates this idea very well. He said, You are not asked to do in service of God that which is utterly beyond you. For it is expected of, for what, for it is expected of us according to what we have and not according to what we have not. God does not ask you to go beyond what you are capable of doing. God does not ask you to go beyond the blessing that he has given you. God has asked you to steward the blessing he has given you. God has asked you to work hard with what you have. Certainly pursue more. Don't not have ideals. But if you have a blessing that God has given you, a family, a good job, a home, sports, intelligence to get good grades, any of those things. If you have those, steward them well. Use them well. Because anything other than that, per this, is nothing more and nothing less than pure selfishness. It's you being more concerned about you and your comfort than you are literally about anything else in the world. And the Bible says that's unacceptable as it is without sense. And the whole point of the book of Proverbs is to increase in wisdom. So, for some of you, I want to challenge you today. Here's the practical application. I want to challenge you to look at the quality of your work. I want you to look at the quality of your family time. I want you to look at the quality of the investment you make in your day job. Do you steward your blessings well? Do you make the most of your time and responsibilities? Hard questions have hard answers. And if you answer that question well, it should result in a change in your life if there is a need for change. Because, here's point two for laziness, because laziness produces worthless results. The thing is, the land didn't stop growing. The land kept producing. Consider what Proverbs 24:31 says. It says in uh, 31a, it's overgrown with thorns. It's covered with needles and the wall was broken down, meaning the land was unkept, unprotected, and any passerby could just traipse in and out whenever they wanted. Anything on the internet can just traipse into you or your children's mind whenever you want it. The wall is broken down. Here's the noteworthy takeaway. Just because you are not stewarding it well doesn't mean the land is not producing something. It's producing something. What it's producing is horrible. It's producing thorns. It's producing needles. It's producing things that will not be helpful, but hurtful. So there are two things we can learn from that. One, Solomon says he considered it, which means we find an example not to follow. And two, we find there is, in fact, worthless growth. This is a matter that Jesus spoke about at great length. I'll just give you one verse. In Luke 6.45, Jesus says, The good person... Out of the good treasure of their heart produces good. And the evil person out of the treasure produces evil. For it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. It is out of the abundance of our hearts that we are either diligent or lazy. It is the real you inside of you that is either a good steward or a lazy sluggard. It is the good, it is the person, the real me inside of me that is either diligent at my work or lazy at it and putting in the bare minimum. The state of your work, whether the bare minimum, the state of your job, the state of the job that you do in your marriage with communication, the state in which you raise your children, the state in which you do any kind of work at all is a reflection of the state of your heart. It's showing your coworkers, your spouse, your kids, your uh, classmates, any of those things. It is showing them the real you, your real values, your real priorities, or lack thereof. It is showing them what you value in matters of diligence and laziness. Which is why, where we come to the end of the passage, both passages, in fact, say the same thing. They say, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want like an armed man. The result of laziness is destruction in one way, shape, or form. You know, typically we think of stru- destruction like an explosion and rubble. Sometimes destruction is slow deterioration over time, sometimes it's the wall getting kicked in from the outside. Destruction doesn't always look the same, but laziness will ultimately result in that. So what's the practical application here? How do we do we do something with this? How do we put that off and put on something else? The first thing you have to do is repent. This is a matter in your life that's between you and God. If you have been lazy, you need to step back and confess that sin to God. If you confess your sin, God says, I am faithful and will forgive you. Repent. You need to go to your family. You need to go to your spouse and say, I have been lazy and not diligent. I'm sorry for that. I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? And then if it's in your marriage, if it's with your family, you sit down, you have a discussion about how things are going to change, and you put a plan in place. You move, you literally move from laziness to diligence, and you do it as a unit. You don't do it by yourself. You ask for accountability. You tell the people at your job, you know what, I've got some goals that I want to meet this week, next week, and the week after. Will you just ask me if I'm doing it? Will you help me make sure that I meet these goals that I have because I want to do this well? You re-fortify the wall. You clean up the thorns and the needles and the thistles. You get all of those things. It's going to be hard work. It might even be painful. Cleaning up that type of thing always is. But at the end of the day, the land will begin to produce things again. All of that, and we have not even talked about the simple yet. And I wanted to build the ideas of diligence and laziness into our minds so that we can tackle this thing. Okay. I think to be simple, as presented by the book of Proverbs, is to be a procrastinator. I think procrastination is a very specific thing, and we we sometimes wrongly perceive what it is. Let's let's look at how Proverbs defines procrastination. We find it in Proverbs 12.24. Proverbs 12.24 says, The hand of the diligent will rule, while the slothful will be put to forced labor. Consider the implications of this verse. It says very little about the quality of work. It says nothing, in fact, about the quality of work. It only speaks to the level of diligence that led to the work getting done. Meaning this, the work got done. The work got done. I don't think it's fair, I don't think it's right to say a procrastinator is a lazy person. I, in fact, think that is somewhat unfair I have known many of folks who have waited to the last minute and done exemplary work. I, myself, have waited to the last minute at times to do things and have been fairly proud of the results of whatever project that I was thinking about uh, at the time. My wife is here, so I'll confess the chair comes to mind. She knows what I'm referring to. You don't need to know. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Let me ask you this question, and I want an honest show of hands. Everybody with me. So if this is you, I want you to raise your hand. How many of you have thought this? I do my best work under pressure. Oh, come on. There's more of you that have thought that. Ah, there we go. That's much more honest. I do my best work under pressure. And you know what? I believe you. I believe you. I think some of you, myself included, have done really good work under pressure. And I will not call you lazy because Proverbs 12.24 does not call you lazy. I'm not going to assess the quality of your work. The question that I am asking you is this. Did you get it done the best way? Is waiting until the last minute the best way to do this? It's not about the quality. It is about the means by which you accomplished it. Because Proverbs 12, 24 says, the hand of the diligent will rule while the slothful will be put to forced labor. But the labor still gets done. The work you set out to do, it still gets done. But really, is it the best way? And if you're not doing it the best way, how much harder are you making life for yourself? 2 Thessalonians 3 actually speaks to this. So we're going to jump to the New Testament. 2 Thessalonians 3 talks and actually gives us a couple of pieces of additional language. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 12 talk about it's a warning against idleness. Idleness isn't worshiping little statues. Idleness here is what you're going to do in a little while when you leave at a stoplight or a stop sign. When your car stops for a moment, it sits there. Your car is running idle. That's the definition of the term idleness" that is used here. And in verse 3:11, Paul says this: "For we hear that some of you are walking in idleness. You are not busy at work, but busybodies." You know, the first thing that jumped out at me about that verse, the word, busy, the word "busybody" is in the Bible. You ever read the Bible and are like fascinated by a word that's in there? My daughter is here so, in here so I can say this. The word "stupid" is in the Bible. We don't, use, we don't say stupid in our home. We're trying to avoid that. But it's in there. there. The words that are in the Bible sometimes fascinate me. In Greek, in the way Paul used it, it was a compound verb. Verbs are action words. Okay? So we know that this is an action thing. What does it mean? A busybody is to do a workaround. It is to bypass. It's a temporary fix that will necessitate a genuine solution for a complete resolution in the future. Meaning this, it's patchwork. You're doing patchwork. Let me just slap this together. The job's going to get done. You, you You were put to forced labor, but you know what? The job got done. And I would submit to you, and Proverbs would submit to you, that's no way to live. Because in it is a failure to plan ahead. It's not that the job didn't get done. I'm not saying you're lazy. It's that you didn't really plan ahead very well. So let me change the word. Let me change the word to maybe make this stick just a little bit. Instead of saying procrastinate, let me say the word neglect or avoid, which breeds a number of questions, some specific questions, in fact. For what reason are we procrastinating? For what reason am I neglecting my responsibilities? For what reason am I delaying? For what reason am I avoiding my obligations? For what reason is the workaround the most attractive solution in the moment? And in many ways, those are really the same question. It's just a different way of asking. And some of those words might mean something a little more pointed to you than they might to me, which is why they are all worth saying. And the thing is, the answer to that question, it's not nefarious. Not everything in life is this besetting sin that overwhelms you because there are a number of you in this room who I've gotten to know over the last year or so who work very, 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 very hard and sometimes you don't want to go home and mow the lawn. Sometimes you want to sit in the chair. Sometimes you don't want to help your kids with the homework. You just want to sit down for a minute and just be like, (sighs) See, the reason you're resting in that moment. It's not nefarious. It's not overwhelmingly bad. It's not even that you're doing the wrong thing. You've just got to ask yourself, why am I avoiding that responsibility? There's no moral judgment there, but you've got to make a moral decision. What is worth more in this moment? Me following through on this responsibility that I have or me having the rest that I have? Sometimes, In a situation like this, it's nothing more than life getting in the way. It's really, honestly, not even your fault in the moment. Sometimes what's happened, though, is you have worked around too long. You procrastinated, delayed, or avoided too many things for too long, and now everything is coming due. Every single thing in the car is breaking down. Everything falls apart at the exact same time. Anybody ever had an experience like that? If anything could go wrong, it would. Murphy's Law? Yeah. Sometimes it's nothing more and nothing less than your habit of procrastination coming back to bite you. Friends, being simple is not not doing work. Being simple is not being a good steward of your time and constantly being put to forced labor. It is a matter of having poor priorities. So, how do we move away from that? I am going to give you a system. I'm going to give you a system that anybody in this room can do. I'm going to give you the system by which generally I try and live. I do not do this perfectly, but I try to. And I have found it to be very, very helpful. I give this to people as counseling homework because I think it's helpful. So I'm going to give you four steps to moving from simplicity, which is procrastination, to diligence. Okay? Are you with me? Let's do it. Number one. Step one. Accurately discern your procrastination methods. Meaning... Find out what it is that you do the most that you procrastinate doing. You have to know what the problem is. The first step to solving a problem is admitting you have one. Are you spending too much time just scrolling on your old iPad or the smartphone? Are you spending too much time watching Netflix? Are you spending too much time on any form of social media? Maybe, maybe you tinkered in the garage. Maybe you do unnecessary work around the house. You know what fascinates me? Waiting to, wash, may, waiting to wash the baseboards of the house until 20 minutes before company arrives. Fascinating. Fascinating. Ah, the laughter of some of you talking to you. Fascinating work. Evaluate your methods of procrastination. Know what they are. Don't make a judgment about them. Just figure out what they are. Maybe you have a child-centered home. Maybe you and your spouse spend so much time investing in your kids that you have poor communication. You need to know that too. How is it and what is it that you procrastinate on? Do a healthy self-evaluation. And if you're struggling with this particular thing, if you're thinking to yourself, I want to do this, but I'm not quite sure how to do it, I want to encourage you to ask for help. In preparation for this, I read a book on procrastination just because I was interested. And the author of the book said during his wedding ceremony, his uncle who officiated the wedding, the uncle said as a part of the ceremony, he, meant, like he mentioned the husband's procrastination. I'm not super close with any of my uncles. But boy, if my uncle was able to note procrastination to me, that tells me something. People are watching. Those who are close to you in your life, they know what areas of life you procrastinate in. If you need help or you think that maybe you are thought of in this way, ask people what they see you doing. Because if you're serious about this process of change, if you don't want to procrastinate anymore, this is not a check to your pride. This is a call for help. Don't be afraid to ask, do it. Figure out what areas you procrastinate. Second thing, create a life calendar and evaluate all of your time for two weeks. Starting tonight, (laughs) starting tonight. So you want to print out like a Google calendar because it gives it to you in like 30 and 60 minute increments, okay? That way you can do a healthy evaluation of all of your time. What you're not doing here is changing things. I'm not asking you to change anything right now. For two weeks, all I want you to do is assess your time, which is why I put this up here. You know from generally six to seven in the morning you're at the gym. You know generally from seven to eight you're getting ready for work. You know that from eight to five you're there and so on and so forth. All you're doing is an unapologetic assessment of your time and if you get to like 5 30 to 8 30 and you don't quite know what you do the goal is to assess it and begin to figure it out step number three step number three evaluate it after two weeks at the end of every day what you need to do is go to that thing and write down and fill in more accurately what you did Today, what you'd want to do is kind of note all the things that you know are going to happen. Your job, the time you're going to do this, you're going to do that. The next time you're going to be at church, next Sunday. You want to just note all of that on there. And then at the end of every day, fill in the things that you actually did. That way, when you come to step three, you're actually able to see, wow, I've got a lot of time or I have very little time. But the difference is you will know how you used it. If you break it down 30 to 60 minute increments, it's a fairly manageable project. And then step four, this is where the hard work becomes. You create a new life schedule. You reprioritize your life and you schedule appropriately. I think about, you know, maybe you actually get up at 5.45, maybe you don't actually get up at six. Maybe you get up at 5.45 and you actually begin exercising at six and you're actually done by closer to 6.45 instead of seven. And you're typically ready to go for the day by about eight. That's actually pretty important. What could you do from 7 or 8 until 8.20 when you've got to leave? Or 7.20, what could you do in that time? Could you do your devotions? Could you spend a couple of minutes in God's Word? Could you pray? Could you pay the bills so that later on when you get home for the day, you can spend time with your spouse and children? Or maybe, just maybe, if you do some of that in the morning, you buy yourself an extra half hour to chill out at night. It's it's not a matter of not resting. It's not a matter of filling every hour of every day. It's a matter of maximizing the time in your life that needs to be maximized. It's a matter of making the most of every hour so that when rest comes, it is true rest. Now, what some of you are thinking is, ah, you don't know how I worry. You don't know. Like I'm always thinking about the next thing that's I'm a doer. Stephen, I'm a doer. I'm ready for you. Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow tomorrow's troubles or today's troubles are enough. And you're like, okay, yeah, sure. Thanks for quoting Jesus. That's helpful. Ha! I'm ready for you too. Let me just give you a principle. Today's worries are tomorrow's plan. Today's worries are tomorrow's plan. If you live by a schedule and you schedule well, you schedule in emergencies. You can schedule in things. There are going to be times in life where something tragic is going to happen and it's going to throw off your whole schedule, but that's not every day. Every day, things are fairly predictable. And if you use your time well, if you maximize your schedule well and invest in it well, you will find very, very quickly that you will maximize the amount of peace that is available to you. To be diligent is to maximize the amount of potential peace that is available to you in your life. To have a good life schedule that you live by is to make it so you get the rest that you not just need, but you want. Does that make sense? I promised you today that this would be practical. And I hope that each one of you was challenged today with something that can make you more diligent. And that you left with something tangible that will result in change in your life to that end.